Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. The deadly coronavirus is laying bare the cruelties of the United States neoliberal order, but it is also bringing into sharper focus the sorry state of journalism. We speak to journalist and author John Jeter. The journalism becomes almost like our political system, top down. Well, everything, democracy, the economy has to work bottom up. And so we have this almost perfect zeitgeist, this seamlessness between our media, top down, our economy, top down, and our politics, top down. And activists all over the world celebrate the birthday of Malcolm X and African Liberation Day. I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans and one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, the big disconnect between lawmakers and the welfare of the American people rages on in Washington, even as fresh unemployment numbers roll in from the week ending May 16th, adding 2.4 million more people to unemployment rolls for a total of 38.6 since mid-March, Senate leader Mitch McConnell and President Donald Trump say that they want to end boosted unemployment benefits. These supplemental payments providing an additional $600 per week on top of state benefits are set to expire on July 31st, and McConnell wants to let it expire, according to a report this week from Politico. Representative Don Bayer, Democrat of Virginia, tweeted Wednesday that Quote, there is a dangerous disconnect between Republican politicians and the anguish being experienced by the American people. That suffering may become a full-blown humanitarian catastrophe if average people and local communities are denied help and left to fend for themselves. End quote. Meanwhile, progressives are still wallowing in their latest defeat, with the most recent proposed stimulus law, the so-called HEROES Act, drawn up by the Democrats under leader Nancy Pelosi still containing none of the key demands such as Medicare for all during the COVID-19 crisis and a basic income of $2,000 a month for all Americans. The defeat of these measures, overwhelmingly favored by the public, is happening as a new report from the University of Chicago estimates that 42% of the recent layoffs will result in permanent job loss. Well, there were more revelations this week in what is being dubbed Pompeo Gate. The New York Times reported Thursday that the Secretary of State's been meeting with Republican donors and doing personal politicking on the taxpayer's dime. And that's after he asked President Trump to fire the State Department Inspector General, who had opened an investigation into his use of State Department resources for the personal benefit of him and his wife. Well, joining me to break down this story further is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the author of more than three dozen books. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. So in addition to these issues domestically, I understand that Pompeo is also being linked to several things brewing internationally. 
Well, you are correct. First, let's deal with the domestic question. Among other things, he's being accused of using his security detail to walk his dog, pick up his dry cleaning, even bring him takeoff food. In fact, the agents who are guarding him describe themselves as Uber Eats with guns. But the actual scandal is much deeper and larger, and it ties into 2024 in presidential politics. First of all, these so-called Madison dinners, as he describes them, they involve billionaires, CEOs, celebrities who are invited to dinner at taxpayers' expense with details coordinated by his spouse. That is to say, he's developing contacts for a 2024 presidential race, assuming that Mr. Trump leaves office then, and he will be facing stiff competition from Michael Pence, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, Nikki Haley, former ambassador of the United Nations, not to mention Marco Rubio of Florida. Now, Pompeo's not wealthy, which is one of the reasons he's trying to line up the wealthy to support him. Also, he's taking frequent flights at taxpayers' expense to Wichita, Kansas, to confer with the Coke family. Recall that Mr. Pompeo was previously a congressman from Kansas, and the Koch family are a major benefactor and sponsor of Mr. Pompeo. Now, another aspect of the scandal that really deserves more ventilation is the Saudi angle. He's being investigated in part because he signed off on a multi-billion dollar arms deal to the Saudis, despite the fact that these arms are used to devastate Yemen, where the Saudis have been flailing in a losing war. And, in fact, the situation is getting worse in light of the spread of COVID-19 in Yemen. The Saudis, interestingly enough, are now making major investments in the U.S. economy that is now in freefall, including investments that really, on the surface, don't make any sense. For example, Live Nation, which coordinates these outdoor concerts where hundreds and thousands are amassed together in a kind of super spreader formation, their stock was heading downward before the Saudis intervened. Mr. Trump's businesses also are not doing very well, and the Saudis are helping to prop them up as well. I'm speaking, of course, of his hotels. And it's interesting to note that Mr. Trump's first foreign trip in 2017 was to Saudi Arabia, that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is quite close to the de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, of Saudi Arabia, and bringing Mr. Pompeo back into the picture, it's also interesting to note that the signature policy of the State Department is the so-called maximum pressure campaign against Iran, of which Mr. Pompeo is the chief spokesman, and of which uh, Saudi Arabia is the chief pusher for this particular boneheaded policy. Now, these revelations come in the midst of other revelations. For example, it was just revealed that with regard to the Pensacola killing, that was engineered by a Saudi national some weeks, some months ago, that this Saudi national actually had ties to al-Qaeda, that both al-Qaeda and the so-called Islamic State are offspring of the dominant Wahhabi ideology in Saudi Arabia is no revelation, in fact. And indeed, Michael Isakoff of Yahoo News just revealed official Saudi complicity in the September 11, 2001 attack on New York and Washington, 15 of the 19 hijackers were, of course, Saudis, but Isakoff's story talks about 
how the hijackers were in touch with members of the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C. Now, as the inspector general was investigating uh, Michael Pompeo's ties to the Saudis, he was fired. Now, Mr. Trump loves the phrase bigger than Watergate. He has affixed that to the so-called Obamagate scandal that no one can define. But it's probably accurate to say that it is bigger than Watergate when you have a sitting secretary of state, a potential presidential nominee who is in hot to a, in hot to a sponsor of religious zealots, speaking of the Saudis, who are involved in attacks on the United States mainland. Well, keep a watch on all these interconnected scandals. And as you said, you know, the Mike Pompeo and his scandals aren't going anywhere. So I'm sure we'll revisit them. I hope so. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. In Culture and Media, in an article posted at The Gray Zone, friend of the show Max Blumenthal reveals new details about the role of Sheldon Allison's Las Vegas Sands Company and its executive security branch colluding with the CIA and a small-time Spanish security contractor to mount a full counterintelligence and discrediting operation against Julian Assange, the journalist, publisher, and founder of the whistleblowing website WikiLeaks.com. More on this story at TheGrayZone.com. The Muslim holiday Ramadan ends on Sunday, May 24th. And also, D.C. activists are among those participating in and making the call for participation in activities to mark African Liberation Day, which is marking the 100th anniversary of the first International Convention of the Negro Peoples of the World, organized by Marcus Mosiah Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association, UNIA, in New York City. The African People's Socialist Party is holding a two-day Zoom conference May 23rd and 24th. For more information and the link, search for African People's Socialist Party USA on Facebook. Also, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, AAPRP, and other organizations are holding two online events, May 23rd and May 25th. Find more information at African Liberation Day Baltimore, Maryland on Facebook and at African Liberation Day ALD 2020 on Eventbrite. Of course, May 19th marked the birthday of human rights advocate Malcolm X, Vietnamese anti-colonialist and nationalist revolutionary Ho Chi Minh, Japanese-American civil rights activist Yuri Kochiyama, and also the celebrated playwright of the 20th century, Lorraine Hansberry. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. at other parts of this earth upon which we live, we find that black, brown, red, and yellow people in Africa and Asia are getting their independence. They're not getting it by singing, we shall overcome. No, they're getting it through nationalism. It is nationalism that brought about the independence of the people in Asia. Every nation in Asia gained its independence through the philosophy of nationalism. 
Every nation on the African continent that has gotten its independence brought it about through the philosophy of nationalism. And it will take black nationalism that to bring about the freedom of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country where we have suffered colonialism for the past 400 years. America is just as much a colonial power as England ever was. America is just as much a colonial power as France ever was. In fact, America is more so a colonial power than they because she's a hypocritical colonial power behind it. What is 20th, what, what do you call second-class citizenship? Why, that's colonization. Second-class citizenship is nothing but 20th century slavery. How are you going to tell me you're a second-class citizen? They don't have second-class citizenship in any other government on this earth. They just have slaves and people who are free. Well, this country is a hypocrite. They try and make you think they set you free by calling you a second-class citizen. No, you're nothing but a 20th century slave. Just as it took nationalism to move, to remove colonialism from Asia and Africa, It'll take black nationalism today to remove colonialism from the backs and the minds of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country. Looks like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet. Why does it look like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet? Because Negroes have listened to the trickery and the lies and the false promises of the white man now for too long. And they're fed up. They've become disenchanted. They've become disillusioned. They've become dissatisfied. And all of this has built up frustrations in the black community that makes the black community throughout America today more explosive than all of the atomic bombs the Russians can ever invent. Whenever you got a racial powder keg sitting in your lap, you're in more trouble than if you had an atomic powder keg sitting in your lap. When a racial powder keg goes off, it doesn't care who, it knocks out the way. Understand this, it's dangerous. Because what can the white man use now to fool us? After he put down that march on Washington, and you see all through that now, he tricked you, had you marching down to Washington. Yes, as you marching back and forth between the feet of a dead man named Lincoln and another dead man named George Washington, singing, We Shall Overcome. He made a chump out of you. He made a fool out of you. He made you think you were going somewhere and you end up going nowhere but between Lincoln and Washington. (laughs) So today our people are disillusioned. They've become disenchanted. They've become dissatisfied. And in their frustrations they want action. You'll see this young black man, this new generation, asking for the ballot or the bullet. That old Uncle Tom action is outdated. The young generation don't want to hear anything about the odds are against us. What do we care about odds? 
When this country here was first being founded, there were 13 colonies. The, the whites were colonized. They were fed up with this taxation without representation. So some of them stood up and said, liberty or death. Though I went to a white school over here in Mason, Michigan. The white man made the mistake of letting me read his history books. He made the mistake of teaching me that Patrick Henry was a patriot and George Washington wasn't nothing nonviolent about old Pat or George Washington. Liberty or death was what brought about the freedom of whites in this country from the English. They didn't care about the odds, why they faced the wrath of the entire British Empire. And in those days, they used to say that the British Empire was so vast and so powerful when the sun, the sun would never set on it. This is how big it was. Yet these 13 little scrawny states, tired of taxation without representation, tired of being exploited and, and oppressed and degraded, told that big British Empire, liberty or death. And here you have 22 million Afro-Americans, black people today, catching more hell than Patrick Henry ever saw. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here to tell you, in case you don't know it, that you got a new, you got a new generation of black people in this country.
I'm here to tell you in case you don't know it, that you got a new, you got a new generation of black people in this country who don't care anything whatsoever about odds. They don't want to hear you old Uncle Tom handkerchief heads talking about uh, the odds. No. This is a new generation. If they're going to draft these young black men and send them over to Korea or South Vietnam to face 800 million Chinese, If you're not afraid of those odds, you shouldn't be afraid of these odds. Why is America, why does this loom to be such an explosive political year? Because this is the year of politics. This is the year when all of the white politicians are going to come into the Negro community. You never see them until election time. You can't find them until election time. They're going to come in with false promises. And as they make these false promises, they're going to feed our frustrations. And this will only serve to make matters worse. I'm no politician. I'm not even a student of politics. I'm not a Republican, nor a Democrat, nor an American, and got sense enough to know it. I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans and one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican, nor an American. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. When we open our eyes today and look around America, we see America not through the eyes of someone who, have, who has enjoyed the fruits of Americanism. We see America through the eyes of someone who has been the victim of Americanism. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. We haven't benefited from America's democracy. We've only suffered from America's hypocrisy. And the generation that's coming up now can see it and are not afraid to say it. If, if you go to jail, so what? If you're black, you were born in jail. If you black, you were born in jail, in the North as well as the South. Stop talking about the South. Long as you south of the, long as you south of the Canadian border, you're south. Don't call Governor Wallace a Dixie governor. Romney is a Dixie governor.
on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. well the deadly coronavirus is laying bare the life and death cruelties of the united states in this neoliberal era but it is also bringing into sharper relief the same shocking standards of bankrupt journalism 
routinely practiced in covering people in other countries and in America's wars. And that same kind of journalism is now being practiced here at home, as up to 40 million people are being thrown out of work, 95,000 people are dead, and a disproportionate number of those dead are black, brown, and low-income Americans. Yet the best corporate media can offer is finger-pointing at Trump or China or the World Health Organization and ignoring any deep analysis of the wretched condition of our public health system. Here to help me break it all down for this month's expanded on-the-ground segment on culture and media is journalist John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Always a pleasure, Esther. Well, let's start with your biggest stories about media for May. Yeah, I, as you know, I've been reading and, and listening to some of the re- reporting that's going on around COVID-19 and other issues. And the first thing I mentioned to you was the show Rising, which is typically fairly good to host are articulate and seem to sort of have an idea of what's going on. But I think it was last week, last Friday, they had on a young writer, Zed Jelani. And he uh, critiqued the media's reporting on racial disparities in the COVID-19 pandemic. And he questioned whether or not they were true. And the reason for this, he said, was that 18 of the 50 states in the United States had not reported a racial breakdown for their uh, COVID-19 infection numbers. And he went on to say that he thought that race typically in the media became a sort of lazy shorthand for journalists who were unwilling to interrogate deeper issues. I'm not sure what would be deeper than race in the United States, but he seemed to think there are issues that are deeper than that, and that race is a lazy shorthand. And he concluded by saying that race, at the end of the day, Uh, It's just the color of your skin, complexion. Right. So I want to play a clip of Zed Jelani actually talking in that segment on COVID and black people. And then also one of the co-hosts, Sagar and Jetty, making his comments. Don Lemon said something like, you know, we are suffering the most. I don't know and understand what the we is here. Like Don Lemon is a healthy, wealthy young person. He has access to world-class hospitals and doctors. Uh, his work is working overtime to make sure he doesn't get exposure. Everything's very clean and safe at, at CNN. The only relationship he has between him and people who are sick is skin color. And that's some of the people who are sick. I also have a relationship with some people of some skin color who are sick. So do you. So does everybody. I think you know, race is often used as a kind of lazy kind of generalization to describe the world when it really often doesn't fit a much more complex and deep world. Right. And Zed, what I like about what you said is that people on the far right cherry pick crime statistics in order to pay uh, in order to sell a racial narrative that fits their pre-baked outlook. And that some of people I don't even think this is a far left thing. I think this is more of an establishment left thing trying to draw racial conclusions from something where there may not necessarily be one. Okay, that was Sagar, the co-host of Rising. And before that, Zed Jelani, a guest on the show talking about COVID and black people in the United States. And I just wanted to play that as an example of what you were talking about, John Jeter. And it's very clear to me that he's not really taking to heart that we're not just talking about people being sick. We're talking about 
disproportionate number of deaths in various cities and various places uh, where blacks are not the majority. And he really rejects the idea of racial solidarity. But I think you had another piece in The New Yorker that you wanted to pair this with, uh, pair with this segment. So I think it was the, the same day I read a Nicholas Lehman piece. Nicholas Lehman, of course, is the former dean of journalism at Columbia University, one of our finest journalism institutions, and a writer for The New Yorker. And he wrote a piece critiquing a scholar's take on a term known as racial capitalism, which, is, which, which means that capitalism and white supremacy are very closely intertwined. You'll see a lot of people, a lot of people in the academic community, certainly who are starting to cotton to this idea and to believe that the two sort of are joined at the hip, as it were, and have been, of course, since slavery. And Nicholas Lehman's critique was that this was an exaggerated concept that racism and capitalism are two very different things. And he based this in part on what he said was the idea of racial capitalism downplays a few things. The crown's abolition of slavery and its colonies, I think in 1812, and it downplays the Civil War, and it exaggerates the importance of cotton to the American economy. Both of these stories in combination really made me see a pattern here. Uh, so first, let's go over very quickly. I mean, this is it's almost too ridiculous to sort of comment on, but it probably should be because they've been out there, and of course, there's no kind of avenues or very few avenues to respond to this. So Zed Jelani's piece that race is just, you know, skin tone, which is, you know, patently absurd. It's sort of like magical thinking. You know, I'm sure black South Africans would be relieved to know that their fight against apartheid was just a misunderstanding. You know, I mean, so what you have is a situation where 42 million blacks in the United States own 1% of all assets, which is only one half of 1% more then when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. So these ideas that race is just skin tone is patently absurd. Equally absurd is Nicholas Lima's take on cotton not being vital to the U.S. economy. Not only was it, was it vital to the U.S. economy, it was vital to the Western economy as a whole. When the Civil War broke out, Robert Barons in England pressured the queen to intercede in the Civil War on behalf of the South because, of course, the war was cutting into their profits by depleting them of the raw materials they needed for their textile mills. And then the idea that, uh, you know, because of the Civil War and because of uh, the Brits' uh, abolition of slavery, that that somehow uh, erases this history of white supremacy and capitalism. I mean, it's sort of akin to Someone saying that a husband who beat his wife for 30 years and then stopped is somehow, you know, not as guilty. You know, it's it's a ridiculous notion. I mean, of course, any critical thinking person can see that there are real ties between capitalism and racism and white supremacy. So it got me to thinking sort of what's going on here. Why would these writers with these mainstream outlets, uh, why would they put out these very dangerous ideas? And it made me understand or made me see that what's going on is that we see the media, which is, of course, already has a very bad track record, but now they're in full panic mode. You can't say these ridiculous things unless you're panicking, right? Not if you're a critical thinker. You're someone who's paid to think, which is what writing is, right? 
So what I think is happening is this is almost akin to Holocaust deniers, right? They want to delegitimize black demands on capital as the country circles to drink. It's very clear to anyone, right, that we're on the precipice of a very real cataclysm. And they want, in this reorganization that's going to take place, they want to make sure that they're still at the front of the line, that their place in society, unearned as it is, that they keep that place in society, that there's not anyone leapfrogging them saying, hey, you owe me this. That's what they're trying to do. Otherwise, how do you, how do you actually say in a national magazine that cotton was not an important crop to the United States in the 19th century? How do you say, if you're Zedjilani, how do you say that race is just skin color? It's, it's preposterous. And I think the only way you actually come to those conclusions is sophistry, right? You're trying to rewrite history in a way that favors you, right? That doesn't account for the despair. And so that's something that's really been on my mind this week, really, uh, as we sort of look at what's happening going ahead, dealing with this pandemic, dealing with an economy that's just clearly crumbling. How will the media treat these things? How will they sort of define our realities? And I think this is a very clear sign that they don't plan to give a clear and clean account of what's going on. Well, I was actually about to agree with some of what he said, because, for example, he talked about how statistics are used by people to point to social programs only benefiting black people or, you know, to create a caricature of like the black welfare queen when most uh, people on welfare are white or most poor people in the country are are white. But then when he made his comment in another segment on the 1619 project, it reinforced to me that he is really quick to dismiss the factors of race. So I have a clip that I want to play for you this commentary about the 1619 project. As you know, our geopolitical analyst on this show, Professor Gerald Horan, wrote this the very important book, The Counter Revolution of 1776 which forms the basis for much of the the reinterpretation of the founding of this country and how so many people who fought in the Revolutionary War were actually fighting to maintain the United States as a slaveocracy. And they were threatened by England's move toward abolition. So I'm going to play this for you real quick, real quick. And the actual opening essay that received the, the Pulitzer Prize, uh, made a number of claims, the most controversial of which was that uh, the defense of slavery was the impetus for the American Revolution. Uh, now, there is a book uh, that posits that theory, but the theory is not considered to be credible. It never took off among mainstream historians. All right, so those are the clips that I wanted to play that kind of helped me to dovetail into what you were saying, that helped me for my reaction to uh, these these two segments, I, I just overall, what I was trying to um, gather in my thoughts to say is that, you know, I had started to, that, you know, I had become a fan of Rising, that I started to, I found it and I said, oh, you know, um, 
I enjoyed the show. I, I especially enjoyed uh, Crystal Ball's commentary. But then I realized, uh, not only in relationship to these two segments, that there's a gap there in terms of narratives that tell stories about the formerly enslaved, the colonized, and the exploited, and imperialism. So they come together with this kind of group consensus on China critiquing China without realizing that the United States set up the system as it is with China, that there's a history there, that it's not just China uh, taking our technology or, and then from the right, the right wing hosts, you know, is just bashing China and the communist party. So it's really not really taking a look at the world from the view of the formerly colonized, like China, the formerly enslaved, like African Americans here. And so they look at race history critique and reporting on racism as a fetish of the cultural elites, you know, as a narrative that elites prefer rather than a class analysis, right? And so what they fail to parse out is that even corporate Democrats like Obama even though even though they're able to weaponize race um, for their own self-serving purposes, it does not delegitimize that actual history of the barbaric and you know savage racism in this country or the reason why the 1619 project was done in the first place. So, you know, you know it could be that, you know, in Shell in in funding the project or these other people in funding the project you know, maybe they do have those intentions, but it doesn't take away the reality of the history. So I have actually a response to those clips. One, Jelani says that Gerald Horn's research has never gotten any traction with mainstream historians. Well, la-di-da. Neither did the very uh, frequent claims that Thomas Jefferson had fathered uh, children with one of his slaves, right? But we know that's true. So, I mean, that doesn't seem to me any kind of dispositive evidence that the slave trade is a factor in the founding of the United States. In fact, it would be very consistent with what we know in terms of the attitudes, the policies of our founding fathers uh, and going forward, race has played uh, really a very large role in almost every uh, administration in the history of this country. So this is really the original sin, right? Not just Nicholas Lehman and Zajelani, it's the original sin of the entire country. The violence of forgetting is all intended to sort of wash away this history and to not hold people accountable. That's what the media is supposed to do overall, right? We hold people accountable. We hold the people who have sinned against us. We hold them accountable. This is an attempt to avoid accountability. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Here to help me break it all down for this month's expanded On the Ground segment on culture and media is journalist John Jeter. All right. So I know we've rapidly run out of time and I don't have much time to get to my things that I wanted to add for this month. But there was a really good piece critiquing resistance journalism by Ben Smith in the New York Times and some good responses to it by Ryan Grimm and Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept. And the reason I think that this is important is because many of these pieces make the case that the election of Donald Trump has fostered this kind of really journalism derangement syndrome, you know? So that if you want to get ahead as a journalist, you basically have to come up with some type of, it could be poorly reported, poorly sourced article. As long as it was criticizing Trump, you were guaranteed to kind of make your name among the the corporate Democrat faux resistance here in Washington, D.C. And when you look at the reporting around Russiagate, the hoax around Russiagate, the reporting around so many stories that have taken up time here in D.C. over the past three to four years, they have been pushed by the Democratic control over corporate media um, like MSNBC, even National Public Radio, all these outlets that have ran with these stories. And basically, you know, you really couldn't get support unless you adopted that kind of narrative. And we're seeing the pillars of Russiagate fall all around us in the last few weeks and months. And I guess the last one will fall when the uh, remaining uh, report comes out. I'm looking into the origins of Russiagate. The other thing I wanted to mention is the Pulitzers. And I was really happy to see that Ida B. Wells won a posthumous prize for her reporting on, you know, lynching, you know, in the 19th century, the um, early part of the 20th century. And uh, we already talked a little bit about um, the controversy around 1619 Project, but I really enjoyed a conversation I heard. I think it was Ben Norton of the Gray Zone really critiquing the the Pulitzer Prizes. And, and if you really look at the types of things that won, uh, let me see. Uh, a photography prize for uh, photographs of the Hong Kong uprising. You know, that's from a very U.S. and, you know, Britain, you know, biased view of the the so-called uprising in Hong Kong, which we revealed to be actually very violent and not about being pro-democracy, but being, you know, another way to attack Beijing and to uh, attack China. And there was another prize for the staff of the New York Times for, quote, a set of enthralling stories reported at great risk, exposing the predations of Vladimir Putin's regime. (laughs) So obviously this is right in line with Russiagate and Russophobia. And so that and and then I guess a a new study on media uh, talking about how this COVID crisis is imploding so many media outlets and laying off so many reporters. 
it made me think about how, you know, we've been doing this project as professional journalists, as volunteering to do journalism and how for a while we've been saying that journalism has become a profession that is really has to be done almost as a labor of love because corporate media is wholly captured by corporate interests and these kinds of stories that will just follow the narrative that those in power, whether you want to call it the deep state or whatever, that they want put out there. You know, Jeff Bezos, you know, owner of our former employer, the Washington Post, you know, that is a primary fount for these types of stories. So that's my little bit of spiel um, on, on the sort the media stories I'm watching for this month. I don't think we have time to go in depth about any cultural things that we were watching this week, but I will mention really quickly that HBO had on a six part series on Atlanta's missing and murdered children at this looking again at the series of what's called the Atlanta child murders in the 1980s. And I thought it was really good. And it really brought up many aspects of the investigation that were not brought to light to the public, including suspects in the Ku Klux Klan that were never, um, that I know I never heard about and how uh, the FBI investigating that part of the investigation really never brought that to the attention of the jury and during the trial of Wayne Williams, who was eventually kind of every, all the murders were were put on him uh, pretty much. Now, not all of them, but so many of them. And it turned out that there were other people who were never brought to the attention of the jury. I caught up with uh, this season's Project Runway. I caught up with, uh, you know, because I'm watching more TV, uh, caught up with another series on HBO Westworld. And I wanted to recommend that documentary I just mentioned, Always in Season, following the tragedy of the African-American teenager Lennon Lacey, who in uh, August 2014 was found hanging from a swing set in Bladenboro, North Carolina. And um, his his death was ruled a suicide, but his family, uh, mainly his mom, Claudia, believed that he was lynched. And so the documentary maker... Jacqueline Olive looked at that case and other cases uh, where, you know, you have these young, young black men mainly and their deaths are considered or ruled a suicide. But, you know, their families are saying, oh, no, uh, we don't see it that way. So I wanted to leave people with that and not not just with um, uh, criticisms, but some some good things that people can see online or on TV. Um, Now, I know that you wrote about the Michael Jordan piece that's been running on ESPN, The Last Dance, right? I wrote, because of course I'm not, you know, like most black men, that's that's one uh, stereotype that's actually kind of true. I am a huge basketball fan, so I've been watching this last dance. Uh, it's a complete hagiography. It's like a commercial. So yeah, I mean, it didn't really shine any light on Jordan, his failures to support Harvey Gantt uh, against the arch segregationist Jesse Helms in the 1991 campaign, I think. His failure to support Indonesian girls making his shoes for a dollar a day in sweatshops in Southeast Asia. And it just really, you know, kind of left us with what we already know, that he was a fantastic basketball player, not much of a man. Well, you know, it's it's funny because uh, because there's no sports on TV, 
ESPN has been promoting this documentary and so many people have been watching it. So I'm sure many people listening to us have their own thoughts. So if you want to leave us a comment, uh, you can go to onthegroundshow.org and leave a message under the show. Or when I post this show for May 22nd, you can leave a comment under the show. But on that note, I'm going to have to wrap it up. I've been speaking with journalist John Jeter. He's a former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. And his book is Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I want to thank John Jeter and Gerald Horn and Thomas O'Rourke and Chantel James for their help with the show today. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we have a new podcast on Apple, Android, and other platforms. The name is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, and the with is just a W, so it's On the Ground W Esther Ivarum. And the graphic has a picket sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Ahmad Jamal Blue Moon, Oscar Pettiford Bohemia After Dark, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.